Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, this is Bruce Webster and Chris Fredrickson here with the Interpreter Radio Show, sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, doctrine, history, and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can find us at interpreterfoundation.org, that's interpreterfoundation, all one word, dot O-R-G. And tonight we get to start on the Book of Mormon. Hooray! Uh, as Hugh Nibley, in fact, hang on a second. I'm, I'm going to dig up one of my favorite Hugh Nibley quotes that I have here. Uh, this is him writing in 1952. Uh, says, the Book of Mormon is tough. It thrives on investigation. You may kick it around like a football, as many have done, and I promise you it will wear you out long before you ever make a dent in it. Now, I've been studying the Book of Mormon for 50 years, uh, and part of, and, and we've talked about this. Uh, oh, by the way, we want to excuse Robert Boylan, uh, who's, who's taking a break for Christmas. Uh, we will hopefully have him back again next month. But uh, something that we have talked about here is, is the, for lack of a better word, uh, the intellectual shallowness of most Book of Mormon criticism. Uh, the, uh, I, I tend to be extremely unimpressed by most of what I read because it, it really it, it picks one or two things, tries to address it, often fails to address any of the scholarship involved, and ignores the other 99.5% of the Book of Mormon. So uh, here you will hear a lot of, over the next year, a lot of informed discussion about what the Book of Mormon actually says. So let's start. First thing I want to start with is we're, we're taking... First Nephi, 1 through 5, that is a single chapter out of the first edition of the Book of Mormon. That is, the chapter divisions in the original Book of Mormon were different. They were much longer, for the most part, than the chapter divisions that were done uh, in the 1880s by, I believe it was Orson Hyde, who also did the versification. Uh, it's very useful to be aware that uh, this... This is a single unit that we're going to talk about. And let's, let's set some context. These are the small plates of Nephi. He's writing these 30 to 40 years after their departure from Jerusalem. So this is a retrospective. Uh, and you'll find that in 2 Nephi 5. He talks about actually doing the large plates and then being prompted to do these small plates. So these are, these are being written 30 to 40 years later. This is well after the split with his brothers, after the death of his father. Uh, and <clears throat> Noel Reynolds was the first, quite a few years ago, to point out, which, which is sort of obvious in retrospect, but I think he was the first one to really publish anything about this. One of Nephi's purposes in the small plates was to establish First, the authority of his father as a prophet, and then establish himself as a chosen successor to his father. 
So what we're going to see is we're going to see Lehi's calling as a prophet, Nephi going to the Lord and receiving confirmation about this, and we're going to see these set pieces throughout first and sec- well throughout first Nephi and the first part of second Nephi. We'll see these set pieces of <clears throat> Nephi going to the Lord, going to the scriptures, uh, going to his father, receiving direction, and by contrast, Laman and Lemuel rebelling against their father, against Nephi, uh, and so on. Also, when Nephi, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but you need to understand the importance of these first five chapters. When there is the split uh, in 2 Nephi 5, when Nephi and Sam and Zoram and uh, Nephi's sisters and some unnamed, n- n- ah, some unnamed number of other people leave and in essence flee, Nephi takes with him the brass plates, the sword of Laban, and the director, uh, which will show up later, not in these chapters. So part of what you're going to see in this section is that it is Nephi. His brothers fail, his brothers resist the commandment to go. His brothers fail to gain the plates. It is Nephi who gains the plate, who slays Laban, who takes Laban's sword. And once again, what, what you will see through the course of the Book of Mormon is that the Lamanites will accuse the Nephites of being liars and thieves, <coughs> that they took that which properly belonged to them, and they were these, these elements, the three things, the, the brass plates, the sword of Laban, and the director, which will show up later in uh, First Nephi. Uh, and so Nephi is laying the groundwork saying, look, I did this. I was responsive to the Lord. I was the one who took the risk. I was the one who got these. We have these because of me. I am the rightful heir to Lehi. Uh, and th- so this is, this is something to keep in mind as we go through these chapters. Now, me having said that, I'm going to hand it over to Chris, who's going to talk about the setting of Jerusalem in 600, more or less, B.C. And it is nice to be back and in the studio with Bruce. And Merry Christmas to all of you, because we are, we, sitting here in the studio, are about a week away from Christmas, so it's a special time of year. I want to start by reading something by Monty Nyman. He talked about his study of the Bible, and um, he said, Should we not learn and teach what the Book of Mormon itself teaches concerning the sacred preaching, the great revelations, and the prophecies, rather than what others have said about its contents, literary style, or external evidences? When I first began teaching the Book of Mormon, about 30 years ago, I taught it. I taught much about the external evidences and what others had said about it. Although I still appreciate and look at these things today, and great work is being done with regards to those matters today. So they are helpful. But he says, I now concentrate on the internal message of the book and yearn for more time to analyze and synthesize these messages for myself and my students. As readers and teachers of the Book of Mormon, we should analyze each account to try to determine what the Lord is telling us or me or you through his 
inspired prophets. Then we should isolate the doctrinal message or precept and evaluate our own lives in accordance with it. We will then be following Nephi's admonition, quote, to liken all scripture unto ourselves. So that's a wonderful way to approach um, the study of the Book of Mormon this year. Now let's talk just a little bit about uh, Jerusalem in Lehi's time. And this is uh, from the Come Follow Me manual. This is much of this information was taken from Keith Missouri's article, Jerusalem at the Time of Lehi in Jerusalem. But it sort of sets the stage as to what we are looking at in the, in the, at the time when Lehi took his family and left Jerusalem. Um, in 600 BC, the capital city of the kingdom of Judah is filled with political intrigue and wickedness. The past decade has been especially calamitous. Judah's kings have been killed or captured. Jews have been marched off to Babylon. Prophets such as Jeremiah have been threatened and imprisoned. We will even see, of course, one prophet so named is going to be killed, described in the book of Jeremiah. It's no wonder the Lord tells Nephi to flee. Population of the city at about this time is 25,000, which is really quite large by ancient standards. Terrain, desert, fertile valleys, sloping hills, currency, money by weight. So there's no such thing as coinage during this period of time. It's silver, copper, or gold by weight. Language is Hebrew. Now we'll learn something interesting here about Lehi's sons, his four boys. They certainly are fluent in Hebrew. Aramaic is the lingua franca of commerce and business during this period of time. And also they are skilled in the writing of Egyptian languages. These are well-educated young men. Uh, there's generally craftsmen, merchants, slaves, and also farmers in this area during this period of time. The religion is corrupt, idolatrous, false prophets proclaim peace, a trump trumpeting rams, ram's horn announces daily prayer. The social structure is heavily patriarchal, including the elders of the city, the chiefs of the families, and the excellent or men of good birth. And households consist of multiple homes generally surrounding a courtyard led by the father. Includes the son's families, unmarried daughters and aunts, and aging relatives. No military at the present in Jerusalem. Any soldiers are Babylonians to whom Judah pays tribute. So those are the circumstances when Nephi is going to begin his preaching. Now, why is Jerusalem eventually destroyed? Well, there's another, uh, this great article by Keith Masurvey. Um, um, he describes uh, they're sensual, they're materialistic, they have lost all sense of divine values by this period of time. They are adulterers. And when we hear that word adulterers, we're not talking just specifically about physical adultery, but spiritual adultery as they have violated their covenants with their Father in heaven and with the Savior Jesus Christ, basically. They're preoccupied with sensitive, sensual behavior, covetousness, dishonesty, untrustworthy. They're treacherous. They're liars. They saw good as evil and evil as good. They're led by false prophets who are wicked and who encourage wickedness. They've convinced the people that there is no need for them to repent. Idol worship abounds during this period of time, and the people have refused to change. As I mentioned, they're so iniquitous that this time in Jeremiah 26, it describes the death of Urijah, who was one of the prophets that was prophesying during this period of time. And he is just one of many prophets that is prophesying during this period of time. With regards to who Lehi specifically is, I think one of the great books and one of the really first great books of scholarship um, 
uh, on um, the Book of Mormon is, of course, and one of the leaders was, of course, Hugh Nibley. And one of his seminal texts, I think, was Lehi in the Desert, which gives us wonderful insight into who this man was. Lehi was obviously a wealthy Jew. You'll remember he sends his son back to get gold, silver, and all manner of precious things. Uh, he is proud of his Egyptian education. He spoke and wrote Egyptian, and he had his sons learn the language. Becomes a form of, as time goes on, um, they lived on an estate probably in the country. It's much like you saw with um, um, when you talk about um, uh, back in the day when you would talk about um, Athens and Attica, the region around it. When you're describing where you live, you would say Athens, but that includes the region around it. And so Lehi probably more than likely, particularly from the descriptions that we get, the topographical descriptions of going up and down, they probably lived on an estate outside of the city proper. Seems to have, must have had some expertise in vine, fig, and honey culture, according to Nibley, uh, and that suggests perhaps the nature of his business with Egypt. He had close ties with Sidon, which is one of the most popular names in the Book of Mormon, which has an official port through which the Jews would have traded with Egypt. His was a world of travelers and merchants. The Hebrews were, and he in this vein was probably much like an Arab, meaning many semi-nomadic traders, especially from the tribe of Manasseh, which Lehi was. He was a man of three cultures, educated in the learning of the Jews, the language of the Egyptians, in the ways of the desert as well. And in many ways, he had the characteristics of a model desert sheik, generous, noble, impulsive, fervent, devout, visionary, eloquent, and he had dreams. The name of his sons, I think, tell us a lot about his, um, um, his um, interaction with all of these different cultures. Lehi is a Hebrew name. Sariah is a Hebrew name. Laman is Arabic. Lemuel, Arabic, Sam, Egyptian, Nephi, Egyptian, Jacob, and Joseph are both Hebrew names. So we get a sense of the kind of cultural immersion that this man has in many things. And again, that helps us understand how perfectly, you know, just like the Apostle Paul, how he was so perfectly prepared before he had that um, visionary experience on the, um, 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 as he traveled to persecute the Jews just as he was perfectly prepared to become that disciple and apostle of the Savior, Jesus Christ, Lehi was certainly perfectly prepared to take his family into the wilderness and to be that great prophet that he was. Okay, let's dive into 1 Nephi chapter 1. Uh, one of the first things, and this is, as Nibley points out, this is a standard uh, colophon, a standard introduction to a document. Nephi establishes his parentage, his education, his standing before God, and his personal witness of the truth of the record. Uh, part of what strikes me, I serve as an expert witness, and this is much of what I do. I always have a section, here are my qualifications. Mm -hmm. As an expert witness, here's what I've done, here's my education, here's the things that people have relied upon, this is why I'm qualified to opine on this, and this is what Nephi does. Uh, the, there, there is at least an indication that Laman and Lemuel may be illiterate. There are passages later in 1 Nephi where Nephi talks about reading the scriptures to them. Uh, and there's never any suggestion or indication that Laman and Lemuel actually read the scriptures themselves. Uh, this ties in with uh, Noel Reynolds has done some excellent articles at interpreterfoundation.org about Lehi and Nephi's trained Manassite scribes. 
He talks about the history of actual scribal, a scribal culture and a scribal, a family-driven scribal nature in the Middle East at that time and says that it appears that Lehi and Nephi were actually trained in this. This is part of Lehi's education. Nephi's trained in it. It's why, it's why Nephi can read the brass plates. Uh, it's why he can start his own scriptures, which is something that you'll note as we go through the rest of the Book of Mormon. The Lamanites don't have records. Uh, they have histories. They have traditions they pass down. Yeah, they don't have records, and when they do start keeping records, there are some points there. It's because they have been trained typically by apostate Nephites, have introduced literacy, uh, and taught them in their language, taught them how to read and write, and this becomes a big boost to trade. We, we see this in the, uh, particularly in the books of uh, Mosiah and uh, Alma. So we've got this, and uh, as... Uh, Chris has pointed out, this is a time of great upheaval, uh, and Laman and Lemuel think their father's an idiot. Uh, you know, they, they think he's nuts. Uh, they, they are, you know, embarrassed. They're opposed to him. They don't like this. Le Nephi establishes Lehi as a true prophet. Uh, he sees a pillar of fire. You have an exodus into the desert. You have an ascension vision with a book. Uh, which is after the order of Enoch, and then a Jeremiah uh, calling, preaching in the streets of Jerusalem, uh, potential martyrdom. And uh, as I'll talk about in a few minutes, he, his dreaming <coughs> actually ties back to the books of Moses as a qualification of a prophet. Because he is receiving dreams from God, he qualifies as a prophet. So you have Nephi, who... In contrast, Laman and Lemuel actually prays about and receives his own revelation concerning his father's calling. He converts Sam to that as well. He convinces Sam, yes, dad knows what he's doing. Uh, and so he's, we're, we have the, the trip back. Well, we'll talk about it in more detail in a second, but we're going to have the trip back for the brass plates. Nephi, again, is the one who puts his life on the line, going out there, and actually slays uh, Laban, gets the plates, recruits Zoram, and is the one who basically leads their group back triumphantly back to his father's tent. And so we have this, this, this whole chapter, these chapters one through five, show that Lehi was truly inspired, that he was acting under God's direction and sending his sons back for the plates. Uh, even Sariah, and I know Chris Watts talked about her, uh, repents for her murmuring. Uh, he then gives a summary of the plate's contents uh, and uh, basically ends up with the phrase, and this is at the very end of, of chapter 5, it came to pass that thus far I and my father had kept the commandments wherewith the Lord had commanded us. So now he's, he's in this, this, this first chapter in the original Book of Mormon, chapters 1 through 5. Nephi has already touched on just about every major difference between him and his older brothers. 
<laughs> including why he deserves to have the brass plates and Laban's sword and why he is his father's heir, both temporally, even though, you know, by primogenitor he shouldn't be, and spiritually. Uh, so this is, this is what we've got. Now let's, uh, I'm going to bounce it back to Chris here and let's, let's well, let's start talking about uh, what, what more would you like to say about First Nephi 1? Um, just, I just love that, that it, it, it's, here's Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, taught somewhat in the learning of my father's great message there, the importance of teaching our children, the importance of educating them, but also the importance of teaching them in spiritual things, what would have been a high priority among the Hebrews during this period of time. But then he says something that seems to be contradictory, having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless, having been highly favored in the Lord in all my days, having had a great knowledge of the goodness and mysteries of God. Now, he's kind of telling us there. He's trying to tell us something I think really important and powerful for us to understand because nobody likes adversity. But what he is saying is that basically I saw many afflictions. I had so many challenges and struggles throughout my life. But the Lord was good to me. I reached out to my Father in heaven. He helped me through my difficult times. And in doing so, Nephi developed a close, intimate relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ, so much so that he came to have a great knowledge of the goodness and of the mysteries of God. So when we read it in that light, we see that afflictions in many ways are, it seems oxymoronic, but the implicit message is that suffering can prove to be highly beneficial to us. So that's how we begin, and I think that's a powerful message because they are going to see many challenges during this period of time. So that's my main takeaway when we're talking about chapter one. Okay, talking about chapter two, this is something I want to draw out because we have <laughs> verse one of chapter two says, For behold, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto my father, yea, even in a dream and said unto him. Uh, now we know they had the brass plates, and again, Nephi is writing this 30 to 40 years after the fact. So this is, this is not some contemporaneous journal. This is the, all of this, all, everything we have on the small plates is carefully crafted. It's crafted decades after the events that happened. And you know, when you mentioned that, I thought to myself, you know what, and 30 years after, we are seeing a spiritual giant yeah. who's ruminating on all his vast experiential, you know, uh, the events that have taken place in his life. And so that's what allows him to give it the power and the context, particularly with regards to the doctrinal, um, the, the matters of doctrine that he's going to teach us. So he, he emphasizes here at the start of chapter 2 that his father, the Lord <laughs> speaks to his father in a dream. Now, we have Moses talking, rebuking Aaron and Miriam, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, he says, Moses said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. So I believe this is why Nephi is emphasizing the visions and the dreams that his father is having, saying, hey, Law of Moses, this is this mm -hmm. is the sign that Moses said you would be given. Yeah, and, and, and if you can conjoin yourself to Moses, you're in pretty good standing yeah. <laughs> among the Hebrews. Uh, second, we have both Jacob and Joseph, which is their lineage, you know, Joseph back to Jacob and so on, both had prophetic dreams. Uh, you have Jacob with the dream of the ramp or stairway ascending to heaven with angels meeting God face to face at the entrance. 
Uh, Jacob has a dream to come back to Canaan. Uh, Joseph famously has prophetic dreams and can interpret prophetic mm -hmm. dreams. Uh, the, uh, then we have, we have a caution for someone who claims to be a dreamer. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 13. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and give thee a sign or a wonder and it uh, come to pass and he said, let us go after other gods, you shall not hearken unto him. Uh, you shall walk after your Lord your God. Well, the, the big division here is you, you do actually have Lehi <laughs> saying, Here's, we, we're not going after other gods. We are worshiping God. We are, you know, he's got the altar there at their, their camp in the value of Lemuel. Uh, they're offering sacrifices and burnt offerings. And his dreams are emphasizing the uh, coming of a redeemer and the need. You have this life-risking you know, trip back to get the brass plates to make sure they have the law of Moses. Uh, and, and Book of Mormon does not talk in detail about the law of Moses, but you'll see it keeps coming back in the the books that we have up until the, the, the visit of the Savior is that those who are righteous kept the law of Moses. Uh, and uh, so you've, you've got all that, and then you've, you've got more dreams. You've got Lehi's dream to get back, which we have here to get the plates, and also the Tree of Life. So we've got these patterns that Lehi is taking his family and fleeing into the wilderness towards a promised land. So that parallels, of course, Moses. The Israelites mm -hmm. coming out of Egypt, Jacob fleeing Haran. Uh, they receive an engraved copy of the Torah. In other words, basically through divine intervention, they now have an engraved copy where you, this is basically a pattern of what Moses brings down from the mount. And you have the, the uh, what's the word, archetype of the younger son being elevated over the older brothers. <laughs> Uh, which, of course, you have both with Jacob Joseph and Esau, and, and you also, obviously, Joseph, Joseph and all the mm -hmm. other tribes. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is, these chapters are Nephi basically saying, look, this is, this is why I am credible. You know, we had the colophon mm -hmm. in, in First Nephi 1, but now we have through the rest of these chapters of this is why I am the prophetic heir to Lehi, mm -hmm. uh, and my brothers are not. <coughs> Um, Con your comments on chapter 2. Yeah, chapter 2. The other thing that's important to understand is that chapter 1 through 9, it's Nephi's synopsis of his father's record. And the way that he crafts it is just as Bruce has mentioned. He's crafting it in such a way to show that his father was indeed a prophet along the lines of Moses. And you can't be any more, you know, credible than being conjoined with Moses during this period of time. All right, chapter two, some of the things that I really love. Remember that they're putting all of this information on plates. This is going to take an enormous amount of time. But one of the things that we get here is we get a, quite a contrast between Nephi's, uh, between Lehi's sons during this period of time. Laman and Lemuel, as they're described here, are stubborn, they're hard-hearted, they're antagonistic to the spirit, they loved money, they're faithless, and they're spiritually weak. Nephi and Sam, on the other hand, are humble seekers of knowledge and of God. They're faithful, they're obedient to their parents, they are exemplary and deserving of emulation 
and worthy as role models, which was one reason, I think, for um, Nephi's painstaking inscribing of their characteristics on the metal plates. Um, Laman and Lemuel, of course, are examples what not to be. And there's also a tribute in here embedded. We'll see a little later. There's no record when we get to um, 1 Nephi 16. Nephi doesn't complain. He's got incredible spiritual maturity for being such a young man. And again, this sets him up as the inheritor to his father, as the leader of the people, and as the prophetic leader of the people during this period of time. We see here um, what I think is um, other... Uh, important information in this chapter is when we look at verse 16, where Nephi says that I did cry unto the Lord. Now notice what happens here. He did visit me. Now, that's all the information we get, but that really is quite, wow, mind-boggling to think of the fact that it seems as if he had a personal experience with the Savior Jesus Christ during this period of time. So again, we see the kind of incredible spiritual maturity um, that this young man has. And as he bears his testimony to Sam, and this is one of the ways we can gain a testimony based on other individuals' testimonies. So Sam is also convicted as he listens to his brother's word. And yet they do not touch the hearts of his brothers. And then, of course, the Lord does something quite interesting here. Um, he, um, he talks about, well, we see Laman and Lemuel, and we see how they respond to their, their brother's spiritual experience and how hard-hearted they are. And so what we see is that we're starting to see individuals that are going to regress and then we are going to see what happens that people, as people progress and develop their relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ, until, of course, Nephi is going to become a spiritual giant during this period of time. Okay, in chapter 3 now, we get into the story of the brass plates. Ne Lehi has another dream, uh, and it's a dream that the Lord has you know, said that you boys have to go back to Jerusalem, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and Nephi. Mm -hmm. And get these brass plates, which uh, Laban has, the record of the Jews and the genealogy of my forefathers. Uh, it says, you should go to the house of Laban and seek the records and bring them down. Now, we don't have here, in what Nephi writes anyway, any, any details as, for, as far as Lehi telling him what to do. But it's interesting that their very first attempt uh, is they simply go in, draw lots, and Laman walks in and sees Laban uh, and says, yeah, can we have the brass plates? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Laban's like, not only no, but heck no. And, and, and you're a robber. And, you know, you better, and I think I'll kill you. Yeah, you better, you better get out of here. I will slay you. Uh, which, which led me to wonder years ago whether or not these plates were actually a source of dispute because we know they had... Lehi's genealogy on them. We know it had Laban's genealogy mm -hmm. on them. Mm -hmm. They were related. Uh, and I, I think Lehi may have said, well, you know, these are actually belong to me. Or he may have had a, a sufficient claim on it uh, and said, look, you need to go get these from Laban. And, and Laban's like, not only no, but heck no. Uh, mm -hmm. Tries to kill them. And we have the second attempt where they go to their uh, the estate that uh, Chris described, that's, that's somewhere outside of the city of Jerusalem, get all the, the wealthy stuff mm -hmm. and go and say, hey, we'll buy it from you, okay? Is this a fair trade? Uh, unfortunately, they <laughs> he says, no, and I'm going to kill you again, and they have to leave all the, all the stuff behind. 
uh, and run away. And this, of course, is what sets Lehman Lemuel uh, over the edge because suddenly they've seen this wealth, which I think they had plans of, of you know, they still had hopes of going back mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the land of their inheritance, to their estate, mm-hmm. and having this money. And they're like, oh, great. Now, now we've just lost all this gold and silver and precious things. And this is where they start beating Nephi and Sam with a rod, and an angel shows up. <laughs> and, and this is something Nephi is going to bring, bring up from time to time, like, hey, you guys have seen an angel. Why, why are you done it? But the angel inter- intervenes uh, and uh, stops them, and they're basically just sort of complaining, like, how are we going to defeat Laban? Chris, your thoughts on chapter 3. <laughs> yeah, that's a good place. Well, I'll get to that in yeah. just a minute. One of the things, just a simple little evidentiary thing. Casting lots was extensively practiced by Hebrews in the Old Testament. I'm not sure how familiar Joseph Smith was, was with the Old Testament, but again, with the rapidity with which he wrote this text in the short amount of time, basically eight pages a day, it would have been hard for him to do the kind of research needed to just kind of, oh, oh gosh, I've got to include this, but there it is in there. And so that's just a nice little point of information that kind of suggests that there is evidence that Joseph Smith was not writing this on his own. Um, Of course, we have these beautiful, this beautiful verse, one of the great verses in all of scripture where Nephi affirms um, to his father. And, you know, Laban and Lemuel, they're just mad at their dad. And their dad says something really important. He says, hey, this isn't what I want you to do. This is what God wants you to do. And Nephi has just had this extraordinary spiritual experience. And after that, then, he's inclined to obey his father, of course. And he says, I'm going to go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare, prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commanded them. And now I'll add my own verse after that. But it doesn't mean it will be easy, and it wasn't. And I think some of this is very intentional, too. Uh, a lot of people say that, you know, they're making this 250-mile one-way journey, perhaps even 290 miles when they're working along the Red Sea during that period of time. This is about a 7- or 10-day journey, depending on how you calculate the mileage uh, just to go, and then another 7-10 to 10 days to go back and another 250 miles. And some people think the Lord did it perhaps just so that they could have this trial, this challenge in their lives. And that is possible. But the other thing we have to realize is, practically speaking, Lehi is going to pack up and he's going to leave. He hasn't made a lot of friends as he's been preaching in the streets of Jerusalem. And it may well be that one of the things that the Lord is calculating and Lehi is calculating too is this, you know, when you travel on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, what you have to do is you have to go wadi to wadi. You have to go water source to water source. So there aren't a lot of routes across that desert. The only way you're going to stay alive is to follow certain routes. Now, they're about eight or ten days away. And so if things don't go as well as planned, planned, the family is at least removed, and it's unlikely that anyone is going to come after them or seek them out because they've traveled this far away. And so that's something to keep in mind as well. But it does prove to be a great trial of their faith, and it's going to increase, of course, the faith of Sam and Nephi when they have these experiences, and yet it's going to have the exact opposite effect when we talk about his brothers. Now, We have this interesting description of Laban. He's, he's obviously a powerful person. Uh, there's not a lot of details here. Nibley points out that this appears, you have at the start of chapter 4 the reference of uh, Laban and his 50 or even his tens of thousands. Tens of thousands was a standard military unit. 
didn't necessarily mean actually 10,000 people, but that was, that was the name of a, a standard military division. Uh, and 50 was a common uh, sort of in the city squadron. So Laban, Laban is clearly a person of some power and prestige. Uh, and as we'll see in, in chapter 4, <coughs> he's hobnobbing with the, the, the leaders of Jerusalem. Uh, Lee Zoram thinks he's out with, you know, the, the brethren, his brethren by night and so on. Uh, so we've got this very powerful man uh, who's already threatened uh, and, and tried to actually kill the, the brothers the second time. Uh, they managed to escape, get out of the city, hide in a cave. We go through the whole incident with the angel and so on. And yeah, that's the beat up your brother. Yeah, that's the beat up. And, <coughs> and then you have Nephi who at all this says, you know, let us be faithful. We, we have Nephi establishing, and, and to Chris's point about doing the right thing is often difficult and faces adversity. You're, we're right back into parallels with Moses. This is a common theme again. Noel Reynolds and others have shown that, that a lot of first Nephi and part of second Nephi draws conscious or at least visible parallels with Moses. And Nephi keeps referring back to Moses. He refers back to him repeatedly, particularly in talking to his brethren. Uh, and he does so here where he says, uh, God is mightier than all the earth, and you know, he is mightier than Laban with his 50 or even his tens of thousands. Therefore, let us go up, let us be strong like unto Moses. Now, there was a recent article, Interpreter Foundation again, that the Bible doesn't talk about Moses being strong, but the book of Moses talks about Moses being strong. Uh, and this, the, again, the, the, there is a frequent speculation that the brass plates were basically a northern kingdom version of the Old Testament. We know there are prophets there that we don't have in our Old Testament. Uh, we'll get into those, particularly in Alma uh, and I think Messiah as well. Uh, but we have Nephi, again, drawing upon the example of Moses, uh, the Exodus, and the Lord preserving them. Uh, and he says, and, and again, drawing upon the parallel with Israel in the desert, you have seen his angel. The Israelites in the desert had the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke as the presence of the Lord, uh, particularly once they had constructed the tabernacle. So it's kind of like, You've seen his angel. You know the Lord is real. You know he's behind this. This isn't just me. This is what the Lord is commanding us. Uh, and I love verse 4. Now, when I had spoken these words, they were yet wroth <laughs> and did, did still continue to murmur. Nevertheless, they did follow me up until we came without the walls of Jerusalem. <laughs> and he basically leaves them waiting outside the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, mm -hmm. He goes, he, crept, he creeps forth, crept into the city and went forth towards the house of Laban. Something Nibley points out accurately is that we're used to well-lit streets. He said, you know, ancient cities like this at night, all the windows were barred and closed. There was, there was almost no light. It was, it was very pitch black. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was frankly a dangerous situation to be in. Uh, because you, you know, you were at the mercy of whoever, whoever you happen to run into. As Laban finds out. As Laban <laughs> finds out. Uh, so we have the famous phrase, verse 6, I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. 
uh, and he finds, he stumbles upon a drunk man and he gets close enough and figures out, wait, this is Laban. And he's, he's passed out, he's drunk, he's got his sword here, uh, which, Nephi, which Nephi draws. <laughs> uh, and he gets the prompting to kill Laban. I, and, and you know what I really love here? People will spend a lot of time rationalizing what seems sometimes to try to rationalize what Nephi does or to explain why Nephi is doing what he does. But let me just grab the verses that jump out at me. First of all, he says, I was led by the Spirit. Now remember, we just talked about here's a spiritually mature young man. He's had experience with the Savior Jesus Christ. He is well aware of the Spirit in his life. We see the same thing with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith certainly was a mature young man and he had had experience with the Spirit. So he knew when the Spirit was actually speaking to him. So he says in verse six, I was led by the Spirit. He says in verse 10, I was constrained by the Spirit so that I should kill Laban. And then he says, and the Spirit in verse 11, and the Spirit said unto me again, behold, the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. And then he says this, and this to me, this is the hinge point for me. He says, therefore I did obey the voice of the Spirit. Um, you know, having had profound engagement with um, the Spirit and with Jesus Christ, he listens. He overrides his personal feelings. He, he's, you know, this is a repugnant idea to him, his objections, his reasoning. And because he's w familiar with the Spirit and willing to obey, he does. And so he slays Laban and then wonderful things happen as he has been able to get those plates. He's basically going to save generations of generations after generations of individuals that migrated to the Americas. He and Emily tells a wonderful story <laughs> about this passage. Early in his, after he became a professor at BYU, he was asked, since Book of Mormon is a required class at BYU, they had a whole group of students who were from the Middle East, <laughs> who, were, who were not Latter-day Saints. And they set up a special Book of Mormon class for them, and they asked Brother Nibley to teach this. And he was, he was, was like, well, okay. Uh, and he said they got, you know, early on they got to this. And he was, he was just thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, how are they going to react to this? And he was talking about it, and he noticed they were starting to mutter to each other. And, you know, he saw scowls and so on. And he thinks, great, they, you know, this is alienating them. He said, one of the students finally raised his hand and said, why is he taking so long? Their whole attitude was, well, he should have killed, he should have killed Laban right off the bat. They were, they, what they did not find credible was that Nephi was taking so long to follow that prompting. And he said that, he said this was actually a key <coughs> moment for him in terms of his own realization that he needed to read the Book of Mormon in a Middle Eastern context. He had been imposing his own Western sensibilities mm. on it. Interesting. And yeah. this was sort of like, oh my gosh, <coughs> this is a Middle Eastern, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at least the first portion of the Book of Mormon is a Middle Eastern text, which is most of Nibley's, I mean, Nibley was very clear. He says, I don't know, know nothing about Mesoamerica. He says, but boy, I know the Middle East. And so we have, you know, Lehi in the desert. Uh, and uh, most the world of, his of other the Jaredites. Yeah, mm -hmm. Most yeah. of his other Book of Mormon writings. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we have this whole thing, and after, you know, agonizing, and, and he, he, again, he's writing this 30 years after the fact and says, Well, I knew this, I knew this, I knew this. So, yeah, I took him by the he head. Does it. Yeah. Cut, cut his head off, mm -hmm. uh, took him by the hair and cut his head off, put his armor on me. 
he doesn't talk about being prompted to do that, but I suspect that was another prompting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that, a good that point. He, he was so going to have to somehow get into Laban's <coughs> treasury. Mm -hmm. And there comes in Zoram. Um, and, yeah. and, but he doesn't know how he's going to do it, but he, he you know, kills him, strips him, mm -hmm. puts on his, his armor. Uh, and uh, again, this is the, he says, every wit and did gird his armor about my loins. And then he's going to the treasury, just trying to figure out how he's going to go in. And this is where he encounters Laban. And again, pitch black streets. Zoram, you mean? Uh, Zoram, Zoram. he's mm -hmm. Zoram. Yeah. Pitch black streets. Mm -hmm. Says he imitates the voice, you know, however, mm -hmm. however Laban talked and, and uh, uh, got Zoram to go in and probably hung back outside while Zoram went in and got the brass plates. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have this, <clears throat> we've talked about the youth of Nephi. We have the slip up because he says, well, follow me. And they're going, and he makes reference to his brethren outside the walls, <laughs> which, which is a big, and, and, and Zoram thinks, oh, he must be talking about these other leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, so Nephi, not. even after the yeah. fact, realized he, he'd sort of slipped up uh, on this, and he supposed that I, I spake of the brethren of the church and that I was Laban. So it's kind of like I, I that, was, that was a big thing. <laughs> that was a big gaffe I made, but... Fortunately, it went right, over his hope, yeah. went right over his head. And he's strong, and he convinces yeah. Zoram. Yeah. And so we get out here, and then his brother starts to run away. He says, wait, it's me, Nephi. And then Zoram is like, oh, crap. You know, mm -hmm. what, what has happened here? I need to run. He grabs him, says, I'm strong. I wrestled him. And then he offers the most solemn oaths to Zoram. He offers an oath on his own life and on the life of God. Uh, and another as, consistent feature of that ancient world. Yeah, was very consistent. I you mean, kept your oaths. And, you know, Especially as the Lord lived and as culture. I live, mm -hmm. uh, we'd spare your life. You could come. You wouldn't need to fear. You could escape with us. Now, there's already been one Babylonian invasion. And, I mean, Zechariah was put on the throne by Babylon. Mm -hmm. the, the Babylonians have already been there. There's a lot of tumult going on. There is, you have the Lachish letters uh, from this era uh, that show the, the constant tension about what's going to happen. Is Egypt going to come up? Is Babylon going to come back? And so on. And I suspect uh, Zoram being uh, Laban's servant was well aware of how fraught things were politically uh, and militarily. And so Nephi says, look, if you come with us, you'll be a free man, won't be a servant. The uh, word for servant and slave are the same in Hebrew. You won't be a servant or slave of Laban anymore. You can come with us, be a free man, and you'll be safe, and we have a promised land we're going to. And Zoram's like, okay. And he makes an oath in response to Nephi's oath. And at that point, they're like, okay, fine, let's go. Yeah, and they go. Yeah, there's, and a, there's no force of yeah. arms, nothing like that. He's like, yeah, let's get out of here. Mm -hmm. Let me do back thoughts. at the ranch, chapter 5. No, okay. chapter 5. This is one of my favorite chapters, actually. But here we have back at the ranch, here are Lehi and Sarai, and they've sent their sons off. And then, of course, we have Sarai doing this little meltdown and rant against her husband. So I want to speak in Sarah's defense, and I just scribble, was scribbling, as I read this again, you know, about an hour before the show, I just scribbled down some notes. And so <coughs> let me just share this with you. When Lehi announces that the Lord directed them to leave Jerusalem and go into the wilderness, leaving everything behind, 1 Nephi 2 records that Laman and Lemuel are complaining. They are totally opposed to the idea. 
the ancient world was patriarchal, but the home was the woman's domain. From birth, women were trained and tutored in household management, cooking, sewing, baking, cleaning, entertaining, childbirth, child-rearing, and organizational skills to keep that house <coughs> running smoothly. Nothing suggests that Soraya, while her sons are complaining, did not support and sustain her husband when he risked his business, his life, and his family's safety and security as he went out and preached the gospel to a wicked generation. And no political rulers like to have public condemnation heaped on their head. So silence in the scriptures then suggests that Soraya shared her husband's deep devotion and commitment to the gospel. With the home front being the woman's domain, it also would seem likely that much of the task of preparing the family to head into a brutal wilderness would have fallen on her shoulders. She had probably led a life of luxury. Uh, she had had a very comfortable life. She wasn't going to do girls camp for the rest of her life, you know, as far as she knew until all of a sudden, here's Lehi receiving this visionary again, where he's commanded to send his soul uh, to sons back. And so here she is now. She's partnering with her husband. She's going to organize the family and the servants, uh, seeing to equipping them for traveling and living in harsh, physically demanding conditions. She's got to assemble the pots, the pans, the cooking equipment, the basic foodstuffs all made ready so they can survive in a harsh, unforgiving desert. She's preparing to leave the abundant comforts of home and live in tents and um, gathers the equipment and resources for that, bedding, lighting, heating, medicine, mending supplies. Soraya would have played a major role in all of these matters and zero word of complaint in the scriptural record. And now 250 to 300 miles from home and after seven to 10 days of grueling, potentially dangerous travel, they came to a stop and Lehi and forms his four sons to return to Jerusalem to do something extremely risky and dangerous to get the plates of brass. Zero mention of Sariah complaining about the Lord's command and her hubby's decision to send his sons. And what are sons to a good Hebrew woman? They are everything. As they've been educated, as women have been educated to believe, and as in customary, as was customary in Jewish society, it was not just a woman's place to marry. Yes, she was ordained by God to marry, but her ultimate purpose was to give birth to children, specifically sons to carry on the family birthright. No sons born to a woman was a shameful matter and brought a modicum of disrespute, even shame on the family. No recorded complaints by Sariah and off go her sons to Jerusalem. Lehi and Sariah both had to know the boys were engaging in myriad ways in a risky venture. Days pass and pass, and you can rest assured that Sariah's all-consuming thoughts and prayers were for the safety and return of her beloved sons, who embody all the family's future hopes and dreams. So Sariah, finally, when the sons do not return after the assumed time they would return, she reaches her breaking point. Only what seems, only when what seems too much time has passed and her sons have not returned. And at that point, Fearing the worst has befallen her f four of her beloved children and her sons, and that her life has, uh, and, and you know, women's children, in Hebrew women, their whole lives revolved around their families. 
And so care and concern for her families dominates her thinking and probably always has. Then and only then, when, as 1 Nephi 5, 1 through 2 explains, and she is certain that her sons are dead and she is mourning their loss, does she have a meltdown? She complains against Lehi for being a visionary man, yet it seems to her Lehi missed the mark on this one. She's living her worst nightmare. My sons are no more, and we perish in the wilderness. Verses 2 to 4. All things said, I believe Sariah was an extraordinary mother and human being and an excellent disciple of Jesus Christ, albeit a human being after all. And after her husband comforts and reassures her and her son's return, her, quote, joy was full and she was comforted, relieved, overjoyed by their safe return. And Nephi describes all that as in sort of third-person terms, but then he records what she says upon the return of her sons. And she spake, saying, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath commanded my husband to flee into the wilderness. Yea, and I also know of a surety that the Lord hath protected my sons and delivered them out of the hands of Laban and given them power whereby they could accomplish the thing which the Lord hath commanded them. And it came to pass that they, they, this means Sariah, her husband and her family and their servants did rejoice exceedingly and did offer sacrifice and burnt offerings unto the Lord and they gave thanks unto the true God of Israel. So, you know, my takeaway is that Sariah, like all humans, experiences worries doubts, faces challenges and hardships, but she was an amazing woman worthy of our respect and veneration and Lehi's supporter, his partner, and his equal in all that they went through. Excellent. The, uh, we're almost out of time here. I'm going to turn these on so they come on when, when it comes. Uh, <clears throat> and then we have the examination of the brass plates. It does have the genealogy. It has the five books of Moses. Uh, and as it says, a record of the Jews from the beginning even down to the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah and prophecies of the holy prophets, including stuff up to date for Jeremiah. So someone's been keeping this active. Someone's been continuing to engrave upon this. Uh, and <clears throat> they, uh, it says that, you know, having examined this, Lehi knew he was a descendant of Joseph. I suspect he knew that ahead of time, but now he did have the actual Proof. genealogy. It's mm -hmm. sort of like the, the, fam the, the family, family legends versus, okay, here is the actual Evidence. family history chart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, going on family search and looking at it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it says Laban was also a descendant, wherefore he and his fathers had kept the records. So, I, I, again, I don't know what the dispute was there over the ownership of the records or whose it should be. Uh, who got their hands on it and when. Uh, and it ends up this, this, again, this is the first, this ends the first chapter of the original Book of Mormon division uh, where I and my father had kept the commandments and we had obtained the records which the Lord had <coughs> commanded us. Uh, wherefore, it was wisdom in the Lord that we should carry them with us as we journeyed into the wilderness toward the land of promise and that's the end of this first chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's... that's Yeah, a, a minute. There's a minute or two left. And I just want to throw in one thing. I love verse 17 in no. uh, chapter 5. When my We're father on. saw all these things, he was filled with the Spirit. Deep dive into the scriptures opens our minds to greater and greater insight. For me... 
the scriptures are spiritual survival. You're listening to K-Talk Radio, KBJ 